children are dismissed to go downstairs as well. We are picking right back up with working through the life and the story of Jacob found in the book of Genesis. We are all the way up to chapter 32, and we're going to be talking specifically today about verses 22 through 32. Please follow along with me as I read. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Yabuk. He took them and sent them across the stream, and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of this place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him, and as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh." This is God's word. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for this time and this place, and we thank you for your word. That through your word, we get a glimpse at just how big and how great you are, God. We ask that your word impacts our hearts and our minds, God, that we can see you more clearly. We want to give you all the praise, all the glory, all the honor, for you are the only one worthy of it. Amen. Now this is probably, hey G, (laughs) this is probably one of, if not the most famous Jacob passages. You may have read it uh, a couple of times, and it's so famous that it actually has been the subject of a lot of historic pieces of art, and I have them on the slides. So can you go to the first one? Logan? Thank you. Uh, So I don't know if you've seen these types of images before, but this dates all the way back by some unknown uh, Russian artist uh, in the the 1000, the first century, sometime. Uh, And so this was titled Jacob Wrestling with the Archangel. Can you go to the next one? This is Rembrandt, probably the famous of all the painters I'll talk about. Um, And this is his take on it, even though they're kind of like dancing. This is the same idea wrestling uh, with the angel. Can you go to the next one? Uh, this one is pretty funny. They're kind of like holding hands. Uh, but this, again, this, you see the idea. There's these famous artists that have made these depictions of this story. And then this is my favorite one. Uh, this is by Alexander Louis. Um, it really, if you can't really, it's a little blurry, but it really captures the struggle. Like this is a wrestling match. You see the details of the muscles and they're contorted and, and it's flexed and it's really impressive. 
But I don't know if you are a fan of historic art um, from hundreds of years ago, but maybe you remember how in 1998, The Undertaker threw mankind off hell in a cell and plummeted 16 feet through the announcer's table. This story is not about fine art, it's about wrestling. Can you go to the next slide? If you don't know what I'm talking about, there's a professional wrestling match called a cage match where they literally encase the entire ring into a giant cage. And the whole gimmick is that there's nowhere you can run and hide. You're locked in the cage to fight it out, and there's only one left standing. But on June 28, 1998, mankind came to the cage first with a folding chair in hand. He threw that folding chair on top of the cage, then climbed up to the top of the cage. Then the undertaker, his opponent, followed him up that cage, right? And after a few blows at the top of the cage, the undertaker picked up mankind, some 280 pounds of mankind, and threw him off the cage, crash landing into the announcer's table. Now, I don't know if you watch professional wrestling. I don't really watch it anymore, but I did then. <laughs> so did my brothers, and as you can imagine, watching this type of thing, what do you think brothers did? <laughs> if you guess that we would politely and delicately share an easy-bake oven to make pastries and sweets, you would be wrong. Because we would wrestle, and we would wrestle a lot. Sometimes just a way to pass the time. Uh, sometimes just as a means of play. Sometimes even our dad would join in, and we would have a nice, friendly wrestling match. As the youngest and smallest growing up, this was a very different experience for me. And often, as you could expect, these matches, matches would end with crying or screaming or a haunting combination of the two. But why am I telling you this? Who's the undertaker? Who's mankind? Why are we talking about Tyler and his brother's love for wrestling as a kid? I'm setting up a callback where throughout the sermon, uh, I might point to these events, and you'd be like, oh, I remember that. Um, and, and we can laugh at it, or maybe you can roll your eyes, whichever you would prefer. But now to our passage. This is a crazy story, isn't it? I don't know if you've read it before, but every time I read it, it's, just, it's crazy. Our passage picks up when Jacob has left Laban, right, he's gone. He has his wealth, and he leaves, and he goes back home. But he's also still afraid of his brother Esau, rightfully so, right? He stole Esau's birthright from Isaac. So Jacob was all alone in the middle of the night. Out of nowhere, an unknown assailant comes in and starts wrestling with him. And through this passage, I think it's amazing that we can see what happened to Jacob, but we can also put ourselves into this story. And I think that we can see that even when we wrestle with God, he still blesses us. He calls us by name, and he reminds us of who he is and what he has done. But first, who was this challenger that appears to fight Jacob, and just how did the fight go down? Picture it again. Put yourself in Jacob's shoes. He's left Laban. Yes, they did come to an agreement that they're not going to go after each other again, but Laban has lied before. Then you see Esau, right? This man that Jacob has been scared from about for so long. In Jacob's mind, he still had enemies. 
And then all of a sudden, in the dark of night, he just spontaneously finds himself in a fight. Was it Laban? Was it Esau? Was it somebody they hired to take Jacob out? But Jacob doesn't even get to figure out who he's fighting before he starts. It's not like a boxing match, right, where they announce the fighters and they go to their corners, a bell rings, and they casually come to meet each other in the middle of the ring. This was a wrestling match started immediately and suddenly in the dark, unaware of how and why it started. How crazy of a story is that? And then what's even crazier in my mind is how long it lasted. Verse 24, a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. This wasn't a five-minute round. This was throughout the night. Can you imagine the total exhaustion that Jacob must have felt? Something you may not know about me is when we lived in Orlando, I was part of a UFC gym, and I trained under a guy named Platinum Mike Perry. I love training with Mike. Uh, Mike was, we'll say, built different, and you kind of had to be if you're a bare-knuckle fighter. And maybe he was hit in the head one too many times, but he was a good trainer. Crazy, but good. During one training session, we were in the ring for three minutes. I had pads on up and down. Mike, not really wearing any protection. But the bell rang. We went at it for three minutes. He was not going full speed because I probably would not have made it out of there. The bell rings again. Three minutes is over. I immediately get out of the ring, run to a trash can, and get sick. Three minutes, I was totally gassed, exhausted. Jacob and this challenger fought the entire night. Clearly, the length of this match shows us that Jacob was strong. He was fit. Some commentators humorously point out in chapter 29, verses 10, says this, Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock. Just kind of showing off like, hey, Rachel, look, look I can pick this rock up and, and water the entire flock. So no matter what, Jacob was fit. He was athletic. He could, I guess, fight for an extended period of time. Now, if you think that that's unrealistic and you're in the camp of maybe this was just a dream or a vision because that would make more sense, remember that throughout the Bible, whenever something was a vision or a dream, it usually is explicitly stated with an interpretation to follow. And also, Jacob is going to leave this wrestling match with a physical reminder. But we'll get to that in a bit. But for now, remember, in 1998, the undertaker threw mankind off Hell in a Cell and plummeted 16 feet through an announcer's table. That part of that fight happened in the first couple minutes of the match. My buddy Tim and I talked about this match a while ago, and he told me he watched it live when he was in high school, and he was sure that mankind had died from the fall. No human being could survive that fall. They brought out a stretcher. They started to cart mankind off and out of their arena. But then, miraculously, and I know it's professional wrestling, and it's a story, it's a show, and miracle is a stretch, but then, miraculously, mankind jumps up from the stretcher, then proceeds to climb back onto the cage, again to meet the undertaker face to face. For 13 more minutes they fought. Eventually the undertaker is going to choke slam mankind through the cage and he's going to fly down yet again, but this time landing on the ring. 
There were chairs flying, there were thumbtacks. Wow, what a match. All told, the Undertaker and mankind fought for 17 minutes and 38 seconds before the Undertaker pinned mankind. After this match, they were both completely exhausted and spent. And that happened less than 20 minutes. And these two mere mortals were completely gassed and done. Jacob and the challenger wrestled throughout the night until the dawn broke. And throughout this fight, something clicks in Jacob's mind. Clearly, this is not an ordinary man that he is fighting. This is something and someone far greater. And the fight changes, if you picked up on that when we read it. It changes into Jacob now grappling this challenger and saying, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. This is not the kind of thing you would do to a random person or say to a random person. It would be incredibly strange. But Jacob now knew the identity of the challenger. In verse 26, when Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me, one commentator says this, It is evident that Jacob was now aware of the character with whom he wrestled, and believing in his power, though by far superior to human, was yet limited by his promise to do him good. He determined not to lose the golden opportunity to secure a blessing from God. And nothing gives God greater pleasure than to see the hearts of his people firmly adhering to him. I love that line. I'll say it one more time. Nothing gives God greater pleasure than to see the hearts of his people firmly adhering to him. Jacob understands that he is now wrestling with God or the angel of God. Both interpretations do have merit to them, and I'm not going to bore you with the details of the argument because either way, Jacob realized that he's not going to win this fight no matter how hard he tried. He was never going to win. And even if he put up this Herculean effort, Jacob was never going to win this fight with God. But he did not leave empty-handed. While he may not have won a belt, he got a couple things that I think are far more impressive. So after this long, painful, and exhausting wrestling match with God, what did Jacob receive? He received a new blessing and a new name. Verse 28 through 29. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. And this is where you can see some true poetry at work. This is when you get a call back to Jacob's previous life story. Jacob already has received a name and a blessing, right? Remember how those things came about. First, Jacob's name. Remember, names were very literal. So when you look up Jacob, it means he grabs by the heel. Remember, he came out of the womb holding on to his brother Esau's heel. And there's another important meaning for the name Jacob. It also means he cheats, which both are perfect representations of who Jacob is. He cheated his own brother out of his father's blessing. 
Both Jacob's name and his blessing that Jacob had up until this point were messy, broken, cheated, and muddied. But now Jacob has received a new blessing, not from his earthly father, but from God himself, his heavenly father. And this blessing far outshines any blessing that his earthly father could, father could even give. And on top of that, he's even given a new name, Israel. What does this mean? It means he strives with God, or God strives for him, or even God fights for. How radically different is this new blessing and new name? One commentator puts it like this, the new name would attest his new standing. It was both a mark of grace, wiping out an old reproach and an accolade to live up to. The blessing this time was untarnished, both in the taking and in the giving. It was his own, uncontrived and unmediated. How unbelievably beautiful is that change? Jacob, now Israel. He met God. He received life-changing news directly from God. And on top of that, there's no way that he would ever forget that because he was also given a reminder. When my brothers and I would wrestle, uh, and specifically my dad would come in and wrestle with us, it usually was a pretty fun time. Just a bunch of brothers and dads goofing around. But dad was a wrestling star in high school, and he was also bigger, faster, and stronger than us, and he knew a lot of little tricks, things that we didn't pick up watching professional wrestling on TV. So when dad wanted the wrestling match to be over, it would be over. <laughs> and it would be over instantly. It just took dad applying just a little bit of pressure onto one of our wrists or another pressure point that he knew of. And we would instantly surrender and give up. Dad wins yet again. He was always going to win. During Jacob's wrestling match, there comes a point in which this challenger was like, okay, we get it. Jacob, you put up a good fight, but it's over now. And he simply touches or pokes Jacob's hip, and it dislocates. It was at that point the light bulb went off in Jacob's head, and he knew he had been beat, so the wrestling match turned into him grabbing on and holding on, asking for a blessing. One commentator summarizes the entire match this way, and before this quote, some context, Hosea chapter 12 references this story. Quote, It was defeat and victory in one. Hosea again illuminates it. He strove with the angel and prevailed. This is the language of strength. But he wept and sought his favor, the language of weakness. After the maiming, combativeness had turned to a dogged dependence, and Jacob emerged broken, named, and blessed. His limping would be a lasting proof of the reality of the struggle. It had been no dream, and there was sharp judgment in it. Jacob is leaving with a physical reminder of this entire interaction, so much so that he would never be able to forget what happened that day. I recently watched an interview with two men, Mark Calloway and Mick Foley, and they talked about how in 1998 The Undertaker threw mankind off hell in a cell and plummeted 16 feet through an announcer's table. Probably should have mentioned Mark Calloway is The Undertaker and Mick Foley is mankind. Anyway, in this interview, they both 
we're talking about how brutal professional wrestling is and how much damage their bodies had taken throughout their careers. But then they talked about the second time that they climbed onto the cage. And after the undertaker had thrown mankind off, chokeslammed him through the cage, he went flying down and hit the ring. But I mentioned the chair earlier, right? There was a chair. There was a chair on top of the cage that followed mankind down, and it met mankind's face. To spare you the details, back to the interview, Mankind was talking about this specific point in the match, and he pops out his fake teeth, and he says, I'm always going to remember when the chair hit me in the face. He's always going to remember that moment. In the same way, there's a reminder that Jacob will live with, so that he will never be able to forget this wrestling match. If you ever had a significant injury to a bone or a joint, you probably know you're probably not going to be 100% again. There's going to be a lasting reminder, and Jacob knows this and limps away from the fight. And then on top of that, he goes on to establish another reminder, not for himself, but for people to come. He renames the very location Peniel, meaning seeing God face to face. So now there's a place on a map that is a reminder to all those that this event took place. And then in verse 32, it says, Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip. There's now a new tradition that's created for the people of Israel to never forget this wrestling match. The fight was real. Jacob would never forget it. Those that traveled through this place would be reminded that it was real. Generations to come would remember that one rule in tradition exists as a reminder of this event. And now comes our part of the story. While we read this crazy encounter, it might be hard to put ourselves in Jacob's shoes, but try if you can with me. Maybe we do not physically wrestle like Jacob did, but we all do wrestle with God. We all try to make it through this life on our own strength, determination, power, intelligence, or skill. And maybe we pride ourselves in that. We often hear, here in church, we hear that God calls us to live a certain way, that we are to submit to him and his rule in our lives. But we often say, no, I think I can do it on my own. I think I can make it through life my way. That's the wrestling match that we make for ourselves. We're often at odds with God. We, we struggle with how he has called us to live. We are sinners and we are broken. Often throughout the Bible, we are called enemies of God. We are at war or battle with God when we try to live on our own strength apart from him. And no matter how strong you think you are, how good of a fight you can put up, when all is said and done, we are no match. God was, is, and always will be stronger than us. He can stop the fight whenever he chooses. And it's as soon as we realize that and come to terms with that, we should immediately stop wrestling him and hold on to him, saying, bless me, save me, I cannot do this. I submit to your will and your way in my life. 
And to quote again, nothing gives God greater pleasure than to see the hearts of his people firmly adhering to him. And here's the beauty when we submit to God. He takes us. No matter what we have done, he blesses us. He sets us apart. He changes our name. We were once enemies, but now we are family. We are now heirs to an eternal royal family, something we could never earn for ourselves. And we are given a reminder in Jesus Christ. There should not be a day in our lives that we forget the amazing grace showed to us by God because we are to always look to Christ. That's why churches and Christians have crosses all over the place. So we remember what Christ has done. So we can remember that while we were weak, ungodly sinners, Christ came and died for us. Christ came to save us, to redeem us, to bring us back into the fold of God. Christ's life, death, and resurrection secures us a new name and blessing. All the way back in the Garden of Eden, God set up a specific way of life. God gives Adam and Eve a choice to either live with God's blessing or experience God's curse. God said, obey my rule and live. That's the blessing. Disobey and you will die. That's the curse. This way of life still exists today. It's still in place. We are all subject to it. And without Jesus coming, perfectly obeying God's will and securing God's blessing, we would never have the opportunity to experience it. And that's the gospel. Even when we wrestle with God, Christ secured a blessing for us. He secured life for us. And at the same time, he takes our curse and death on his own shoulders. And all we need to do to experience this blessing is submit and believe what he has done for us. Church, I strongly consider that you remember that every moment of every day. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for what you have done for us. We thank you for your word and the truth that it holds. We ask that you truly wrestle with us, that we are able to come to the realization that we are to submit to you, God. We ask that you are leading us, you are guiding us. We ask that we are every single day in awe and wonder of who you are and what you have done in our lives. We want to give all the praise, all the glory, all the honor for you are the only one worthy of it. Amen. Now we have a time to confess together corporately where we can say that yes, we are in need